Good morning. What a joyful noise in the room this morning. It's so good to be together. It's fun to have our, our times of greeting, getting to, to meet some new people. I, I talked to a gal first service who usually sits by me and she said, yeah, I'm sitting at a totally different side of the room now so I can meet a whole new group of people. So she says she's going to move around and I thought, what a great idea. We're such creatures of habit, right? We always like to sit in our same spots. So I hope you got to meet somebody new this morning. My name's Marianne Nowak. I'm the pastor to women here, and I also have the great joy of being part of the teaching team, which is Pastor Adam, Pastor Christopher, Pastor Eric, and myself. And so I'm excited to bring you a message from God's Word this morning. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Adam launched us back into our Roman series, and he challenged us to think about Romans 8 as one of the most powerful, awe-inspiring passages in all of Scripture. And then a few weeks later, Pastor Christopher likened Romans chapter 8 to Handel's Messiah. You remember that? It's like a powerful song of praise that ignites your heart to worship. And this morning, we've reached the climax of that song. You know what the climax is? It's the hallelujah chorus, right? Sing it with me. Hallelujah, right? That's where we are today. We're at the hallelujah chorus. Romans chapter 8 culminates in this proclamation of God's victorious love. And we find that his love is stronger than all of our unfaithfulness. It's because God is love. Love is a facet of his divine nature. We know that from 1 John 4, which says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So love is not one of God's attributes. It's his very nature. And we know that God lives in a perfect love relationship in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a perfect relationship of love. Love is an essential element of God's being. It's the supreme expression of his personhood. Think of love as the lubrication for all of his other attributes. His holiness, his benevolence, his justice, his mercy, his sovereignty, Every aspect, every, every element of God's nature moves and is expressed through the lubrication of love. Everything that God does is because of his love, and he can do nothing that does not originate from his love. And the crowning proof of God's love is the cross of Christ. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the crowning proof of God's love. And so the Bible is actually an epic love story. Did you know that? From Genesis to Revelation, the whole of Scripture is an epic love story. And today, the passage that we're looking at is the most praiseworthy of all the Scripture. It's Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And we're going to find this is a call to praise God for his great love for us. So will you open your Bibles to Romans 8? And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And I know one will magically appear, supernaturally appear. Um, We'd love for you to see the text right in front of you as we look at this amazing, amazing part of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, who did not spare his own son... 
but gave him up for all of us, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would please help us in this moment to grasp the enormity of your love today. As we open our ears to, to hear your voice of truth through these words, as we open our hearts to receive your gift of love through your son, Jesus Christ, oh Lord, please meet us in this moment, I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I wanna look at this passage sort of in three different parts this morning. I wanna first look at the fact that God's love is costly, and then I want us to see how God's love is comforting, and then lastly, we'll see how God's love is conquering. So let's look first at the costliness of God's love. Look at verse 31. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So what are these things that Paul's referring to? We have to go back to last week, the passage that we looked at last week, Pastor Adam took us through. It's verses 29 and 30. You can see it in your own text. The things that Paul's saying, he's saying, you know, look, because God foreknew us from the foundation of the earth, because God predestined us as believers to be conformed to the image of Christ, because God called us to himself, wooing us to himself through his Holy Spirit, because God justified us by declaring us righteous based on the fact that Jesus paid our debt of sin on the cross, because God is glorifying us today as he is changing us into the likeness of Christ and promises that one day we'll have a glorified body, that our bodies will actually be like Jesus' resurrected body. He is at work to glorify us. Because he's saying of these amazing realities that are ascribed to those who are in Christ, and because, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, as we talked about last week, whether the good happens on this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, God will redeem the brokenness and suffering of, of our lives in this world for our good and for his glory. And so Paul's saying, because of all of these realities that he has just said to us so powerfully, he's saying, we know that God is for us. So who or what can ultimately be against us? Victory is inevitable because God is on our side. And how do we know that God is truly on our side? How do we know that? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Paul is, is hearkening his readers back to a story they know very well from Genesis 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was a man of great faith, and he was willing to sacrifice his son on the altar as an expression of his intense love for God. But God spared Abraham's son from harm by providing an animal sacrifice in his place. This was a foreshadow of what God would do one day with his own son. Though he spared Abraham's son, he did not spare his own son. Rather, Jesus fulfilled his father's plan by going to the cross, by dying and suffering for the forgiveness of our sins, and then was raised from the grave victoriously, as we just sang, um, from, from graves to gardens, or gardens to graves, however we saying that. It's a picture of what God did. He raised him from the dead, and Jesus ascended into heaven, and now he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. In this moment, he is interceding for us, right in this very moment. So if Paul's saying, if God has done all of this, what would he possibly withhold from us? When my son Spencer was getting ready to go off to college after, after high school, um, he was gonna go to LA for college and my husband and I decided to buy him a car. Um, he was gonna need it when he went away to live in LA. We knew he was gonna need a vehicle to drive, but we'd never even discussed it. We never even entertained this conversation with him. One day after church, my, Bob and I got in the car, we drove to the Honda dealership and we bought a brand new Honda Element, which was a very cool car for an 18-year-old kid. They don't even make them anymore, but it was cool back then. And then we brought the car home, and we put it in the driveway, and we got this huge bow, and we put it on the hood. And then we went and we called him to come outside and to see this amazing gift. Now remember, it's not, it was not his birthday. It wasn't his graduation from high school. It was just a random day and a complete surprise to him. He had absolutely no idea that he was gonna receive this lavish gift. And he was completely blown away, completely blown away. But imagine now that, that we had showed him this wonderful car, but we didn't give him the keys to drive it. You know, why would we do that? As gift givers, why would we withhold anything that would hinder Spencer's enjoyment of this beautiful new gift? The keys were small and they were insignificant compared to this beautiful car, but they were beneficial to the enjoyment of the gift. And in the same way, God withholds nothing in his love and care for us. Since he has already given us his son, the greatest gift we'll ever receive, there's nothing beneficial that he will withhold from us, that he will hold back. Well, knowing that we are loved by God in this way alleviates our fears. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Imagine that you get a summons to come to court. Someone is accusing you of breaking the law, and you know what? You're guilty. You broke the law indeed. But your debt of punishment has been paid. You're unimpeachable now. No accusation will stand up against you in court. And you know what's best of all? You know the judge. In fact, it was his son who paid your debt, so you're free to go. It's because the judge knows better than anyone else what you really did, 
and how much it costs to pay your, pay your debt and how fully that payment was satisfied in the payment that his own son made. And so you're released, you're free. But then you step out into the courtyard house steps and your accusers are still standing there accusing you of wrongdoing. You see, Satan is, is a liar. He's an accuser and he's a liar. And he whispers to us lies about God. He wants us to doubt God's goodness. He wants us to question the efficacy of the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when Satan isn't whispering in our ears, then we accuse ourselves with our own negative self-talk. You know, we replay in our minds all the regrets of our lives. We rehearse in our heads all of the sins that we've done. And we make our own case for why God couldn't possibly love us enough to free us from our due punishment for the sins that we've committed. And then if that's not enough, we've got the voices from the world chiming in, calling us foolish for believing in God, calling us frail, like we need a crutch for our weaknesses, which is why we have faith in Jesus. But no matter how the enemies of our soul scream at us, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, no matter how they persist in their accusations against us, God declares that we're righteous in Christ. He will never summons us to court. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins once and for all, and he raises his nail-pierced hands against all the voices of accusation that are screaming against us in the courtroom, and he silences them as he is interceding before the Father on our behalf. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is that the cost of the cross set us free from all condemnation. The accuser can't stand a chance against the one who has already secured the victory over sin and death. So let me ask you, what voice of accusation is screaming at you? What voice is screaming at you? And who are you giving the mic to to amplify words that are, that are speaking into your identity and it's not Jesus? Don't listen. No one has any right to accuse you before God. There's no condemnation. Jesus has already borne your guilt on the cross. You are not condemned by your mistakes. You can go freely to Jesus now and you can confess your sins to him and immediately receive forgiveness. And in fact, I encourage you to keep short accounts, to go frequently to the cross, to confess often and to receive that forgiveness and to just live in the freedom that Jesus has provided for you and for me on the cross. Let's talk about how love is comforting. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You might recognize some of those things as things that Paul experienced in his own life. Paul's actually drawing on his own experience when he's talking to us now. We learn from 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul was imprisoned and beaten nearly to death. We learn that he was five times he, was, he received 39 lashes, which is considered one less than death. Once he was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. 
He was beaten with rods three times. He was in constant danger from people and from the elements of nature. He said he was constantly hungry, thirsty, cold, and deprived of sleep. And so Paul is speaking from his experience, and Paul does not regard the Christian walk as your best life now. Not at all. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 44 to make the point that that hardship is actually a part of life. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We know that that God's people have always faced a variety of trials. And sometimes we do experience hardship because of our faith. There are times when when we are feeling um, exiled in our workplaces or in our school situations or in our neighborhood. We feel judged, we feel condemned, we're not included. There's all kinds of ways in which, as we identify as Christ followers, we feel the opposition of that. Certainly people in the first century, they understood they were persecuted and killed for their identification with Jesus. Paul was one of the people who was persecuting Christians before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But I would say that primarily in our generation, the types of sufferings that we experience are are common to everyone. We have hurricanes and we have fires. We have internet fraud and we have investment scams. We have diseases and injuries. We have divorces and betrayals, disabilities and death. We live in a world that is broken by sin and no one escapes suffering. I say, if you haven't suffered yet, it's probably because you haven't lived long enough because suffering in this world is inescapable. And God doesn't shelter us from our broken world problems. He is allowing the fallout of sin to have its impact on the world, and, but he's using our trials to develop our faith and to awaken us to our desperate need for him. In my own small family, just the four of us, we've experienced cancer, car accidents, marital woes, job losses, death of loved ones far before their time. We've had surgeries, financial losses, thieves, exhaustion from life and ministry, and false accusations. And you know what? What I would say is the crowning glory of of suffering in our family is the impact of muscular dystrophy on my son Adam's life. But in all this Who will separate us from the love of God? No one and nothing. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed into a highway just after taking off from Detroit Airport. You might remember, um, this this is a, a horrible accident that happened. There were 155 people on board and, um, and, and who, well, there were 155 people who died, and there was actually one survivor. It was a four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona, and her name was Cecilia. And rescuers were shocked when they went into the wreckage of the plane, and they found this little girl alive. She was actually wrapped in the arms of her mother who had perished in the crash. Her, name, her mother's name was Paula Cheekin, and it seems that what she had done was she had unbuckled her seatbelt, she had gotten down on her knees, she had wrapped her arms around her little girl as the plane was about to crash. The love of this mother could not be separated from the love of her child. 
in the worst of sufferings. Nothing could separate Cecilia and the love of her mother. In the same way, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ who sacrificed his own body on the cross to save us. Love never fails. Love endures forever. And the truth is that the love of Christ comforts us in our suffering. Paul says in in Romans 5, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, in love, God poured out his spirit into our hearts to comfort us in our suffering and to to help build up our endurance and our character and our, and our life of hope. And all the while, we have a Savior who sympathizes with our pain as he's actively interceding for us. We are not alone. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pour their love into our hearts in different ways. And so no one and nothing can separate us from God's love. I wanna ask you, what, in what area of your life that you're experiencing pain or disappointment or worry or fear, do you need to cling to the Lord Jesus for comfort this morning? Will you invite him to come near to you and to wrap his loving arms around you as you're walking through whatever kind of suffering that you are and allow him to love you? Invite him in. Let's talk about how God's love is conquering This is where the hallelujah chorus reaches its climax. As we go back to Paul's rhetorical question where he he says, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? In verse 37, he just shouts, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, not only is Jesus Christ our comforter, he's our conqueror. He's the lamb of God and the lion of Judah. He's the suffering servant and the conquering king. Jesus has won the victory on our behalf. And in fact, we are more than conquerors in Christ. The literal translation of the scripture says that we are um, super conquerors or super victors in Christ. He gives us the victory by his conquering love. And once we come to Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Look at verse 38. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that Paul lists every conceivable form of danger or form of threat. He says, you know, life or death, right? Well, there's only two modes of human existence. We're either alive or we're dead. So he's got that pretty much covered, right? Um, But Paul shares his personal perspective on life and death in Philippians chapter one, where he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's not gonna be life or death, He says, nor angels or rulers, so Paul is covering all realms of authority. So whether good angels or bad angels, which we call demons, or rulers on earth, presidents, 
politicians, leaders, just or unjust, none of them will separate us from the love of God. He says neither things present or future, so now he's including everything on the chronological time scale. Nothing that's happening now and nothing that's to come. He said powers, and most likely he's referring to demonic forces that wage war against us, but also could be talking about the power of nature, the, the elements of nature that come against us, that harm our lives. Nothing, even in the devastation of the land, can separate us from the love of God. And then he says height or depth. So he's saying from the stars in the, in the heavens to the lowest depth of the sea, He's saying there's no spatial dimension in all of life that will separate us from Christ's love. And as David exclaimed in Psalm 139, verse eight, he said, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's no space. And then he says, there's nothing in all creation, no way, shape, form, anything is a barrier between us and God. I love Isaiah 59.1 that just reminds us that God's arm is never too short to save us. Never, it's impossible. So what Paul's saying is he's saying this bond of love between God and the believer in Jesus Christ cannot be thwarted. And in fact, rather than dividing us, many of these forces actually move us closer to him as we draw near to him in times of suffering and opposition. These are actually the things that make us more dependent on him. And then the closer we cling to Jesus, the more victorious we are in him. Because the truth is, God's love triumphs over all adversity. Jesus not only comforts us in our afflictions, but in our deepest affliction, he also can pour into us an overwhelming sense of joy. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 7.4 when he says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm, com I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. And we know how much affliction Paul had. He says, I am overflowing with joy. You know, the huge crash of waves that hits the ocean shore that terrifies you and me, the average swimmer, they're a thrill for someone like Colin who likes to ride them, right? The surfer rides the same waves that terrify us. And in the same way, all the things that we fight hardest against, the things we try to avoid, like persecution and suffering, those are the things that can produce the greatest joy when we face them with the love of God. In Christ, we are conquerors in all things, not in spite of all things. It's in the midst of all things that we're conquerors by his love. The truth is that God expresses his everlasting love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. The greatest proof of God's love for us is the cross of Christ because God did not spare his son. He did not spare his son to save us from the penalty of sin. And you know what the penalty of sin is? It's separation from God. And he's saying, you'll never be separated from God because God didn't spare his son to pay the penalty of our sin so that we can be reconciled in a relationship with God. And we know that nothing can put a barrier where a barrier has been overcome. We are secure in the love of God. So I think the question is, how do we respond to this amazing love? What should be our response? God asks us simply to love him in return, to, to love him in return for all the love he's extended to us. Matthew 22 actually states it as a commandment. It's actually not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's a commandment. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The reason that God desires for us to respond this way to him is because it's right, it's true, it's good, it's the appropriate response. God has made it possible for us to love him through his word where we get to know him and we get to deeply understand what he's done for us. And then he gives us his spirit so that our hearts are changed to have a, a deep sense of awareness of him and a, a love for him in our spirit. And then we, Jesus Christ comes all the way to us to make God known to us. So how do we do this? How do we love him in return? Just like we sang about this morning, we believe the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ. We begin by believing, which is simply agreeing with God, saying, yes, I agree. You have done this for me. I receive it. Tim Keller describes the gospel very simply. He said, the gospel, in the gospel, you're, you find you're more sinful than you ever dared believe, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. It's a good way to remember. But the gospel is the good news about God's, the, the depth and the power of God's love. And it's expressed through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the question is simply, do you believe it? When you do and you receive the Lord Jesus as your savior, you are, you are giving back to God the greatest expression of your love. Which as we know, we love because he first loved us. Right? We respond to God's love when we agree and believe what he has done for us. And then the second thing that, that we can do to respond to God's love is to live into the realities that we've talked about this morning. You know, to embrace the freedom from condemnation that has been afforded to us by the cross. There is no condemnation, we are free. When those voices shout at you from the world, from your own flesh or from the devil, reject them. Remember that that there is no condemnation if you're in Christ. Live into that freedom. Enjoy what has been secured for you on the cross. Worship him for that reason. And then to receive the comfort that, that Christ offers you as someone who knows your suffering, and someone who has suffered as well, who's interceding for you. Um, allow him to come into the hurting places of your life and, and let him embrace you and hold on to you as you're going through the hard things. Invite him in, bring him close, receive what he has to offer by his grace. And then experience the joy of knowing that you're a conqueror, that you share in the victories of Christ over the afflictions of your life. No one is ever gonna separate you from the love of God. The victory has been won. You may not see all of the victory this side of the cross, but you will one day. You'll see how God used everything in your life for your good and his glory. There's an old hymn that I love so much called The Love of God, and there's one particular um, verse in this hymn that I just think paints such a beautiful picture of God's love. It goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a tribe by, scrade, tribe by, scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Will you praise him with me? Father, we praise you, we thank you for your enormous love. It truly is unfathomable to us how much you love us, but it's helpful to look at the cross of Christ and know that you gave your only son so that we could be forgiven and reconciled in a relationship with you. You came all the way 
And all you ask of us is that we respond with faith, that we believe, we agree, we receive it for ourselves. You've made it so simple and yet our hearts are hard and it's hard for us sometimes to relinquish the hardness of our hearts to just receive you. And so I pray this morning, Lord, you'd help us to love you in return, to worship you and praise you for the great love that you have given to us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.